Welcome to another episode of the Lock of Law 2 podcast, where I talk about how I see 109. I am your host, Larry Wiggs II, and I'm here today with a live in-studio guest, my grandfather, Mr. Alfred Wiggs. Let's give him a round of applause for, <laughs> for being here today to uh, share in this experience. Thank um, you, Larry. So, Granddad. Yes. I, um, I know you um, as my granddad. I know your history and I know your story pretty well. And I must say it's a remarkable story. Mm. Um, all of your experiences um, from Florida, where you were born, all the way through uh, California, and then uh, in Nevada, uh, where you reside today. Um, There's so many stories and uh, I don't know. What would you, what what would you like to talk about today? What what can we uh, discuss? What's on your mind and anything that you'd like to discuss? Well, first of all, Larry, uh, I want to wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. It's coming up shortly. Oh yes. I appreciate your uh, being here at my home to uh, to take care of my house while we are. Uh, being in Hawaii for the next 10 days. I'll be house-sitting. House-sitting, right. So right. I hope nothing happens, and I hope you don't burn the house down. <laughs> and I hope that uh, you have a good time here while we're gone, and I hope you can bring your family here, and they can all enjoy this wonderful time here in Nevada. And if you have to go out to uh, gambling, I hope you have a very <laughs> fruitful day when you're gambling, and hope you have uh, much luck. So... Well, we can talk about anything that's relevant, and so I appreciate your interview. I'll say this about the the gambling. Um, you know, today I went out and I purchased uh, this uh, Blue Yeti microphone. So for my listeners out there, you're listening to the IC 109 podcast on a new uh, a, a new microphone. So hopefully the quality uh, is superior to uh, what it was before. Um, but I, I purchased the, the Blue Yeti because um, it gives me the opportunity to create and to express my creativity, to do something uh, productive uh, with my time, rather than sit at the casino and hope to win some money. So um, while I'm here, I'm going to uh, you know, continue to produce these podcasts from Nevada, and um, hopefully I won't think about going out to the casinos and um, and losing any more money, so. Well, if you do, as I said, I wish you luck. But I want to emphasize one thing: is that I'm very, very proud of you and what you've accomplished all of these years in all of your travels. I know you've been all over the world, many places I have never been. You've been to South and Central America, Cuba. You've been to Europe. You've been to the Orient, and uh, I've only been to Japan and the Caribbean. And you've been all over this place, and so that is very fortunate you can do that and get some worldly experiences. So with that in mind, I would like to say that with you as a grandson, and you have a, a sister, and my granddaughter, uh, and I have two other grandchildren, so I want to wish all you guys the best. And so I know one thing is that recently you got married, Yes. So I want to wish you the best in your marriage with you and your wife. Um, I keep forgetting her name. And 
Randy. Her name is name is Randy. I, I think she's a very wonderful person, very sweet person. I really enjoy her. I wish that she could spend more time with you while you were in Vegas. So, and I'm gonna miss you guys while I'm gone. So with that in mind, I'll I'll take your questions. So, <clears throat> thank you for that, um, for mentioning Japan because Japan uh, is a country that we've 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 both visited, and I find that um, somehow there is a sort of a spiritual resonance. For me, my my channel, this channel that I that I have, I see a 109 podcast, and my listeners will know, is a lot about spirituality, numerology, and and these uh, quirky experiences that I've had, and I know um, from experience that Japan has resonated deeply with me. It's a beautiful country. The people are very nice, um, but I know that you had a. Um, a, a unique experience as well and you have a, a an appreciation and a fondness for uh, Japanese culture so please tell us about that experience okay, I'll be glad to I never forget that in 1955 I was in the military in the army and I spent I think was a month and a half in Tokyo and I tell you that I just really really enjoy the Japanese culture I really do. I think they have a unique culture that I really appreciate and I wish I can uh, uh, bring that to America, their culture. And the people were extremely nice and friendly while we were there in 1955, only 10 years after Hiroshima and uh, uh, Nagasaki. Yes. And so, uh, but the people showed me no animosity. They're all friendly. As I said before, I love their culture. And for some reason, my friend and I were down on the Ginza one day, and I told him that this place looks so familiar to me, and I had never been there before. <laughs> and I said, let's go around the corner of the restaurant. I, I know it's there that I really know about. Wow. So we walked around the corner, and there was a beautiful, quaint little restaurant. Huh. It seems though I've been there in my previous life. Wow. And I said... Am I uh, resurrected uh, Japanese? Wow. I don't know. But it just seemed that it was so surreal that I could really remember that there was a restaurant around this particular corner on the Ginza. Wow. And that's what I really appreciate. And the people there were so extremely friendly. I can never forget it. If I were to die and come back, I'm going to be a Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yes. And so... <clears throat> And so, did you enter the restaurant? Do you, do you remember uh, what you may have uh, done, uh, what you may have eaten or, or drank um, on that particular visit? Definitely. I know I had sake. Oh. I had a warm sake, and I know I had noodles. That's all, that's all I can remember that I ate at that particular time at that restaurant. I had noodles, and I had some hot sake. Okay. So that was in the middle of the day anyway, so... I, didn't, I was not that hungry, but I really enjoyed it. And this was in the 50s, and you were in 1955. the... 1955. In the military, and in 55, that was during the Korean War? After. Korean War ended in 1953, as I recall, and this is 1955. Okay. All right. So along with your story, um, your military service, 
um, I, I guess it, it, it led into your uh, service uh, or you became a police officer yes uh, many years later yes but relying upon your military service you were able to I guess parlay that experience into your uh, service for the LAPD um, and you were an, an officer of the LAPD for 20 some years yes 22 years okay and um, in was it 1986 that you retired no 1983 83 I went on in 1960 and left in uh, 1983 um, I was there doing the watch right the first watch right 1965 that was a horrendous time of my experiences on the LAPD uh, I was gone in 1992 when they had the second uh, right there, Rodney King situation. I was gone. But uh, I had some up and downs on the Los Angeles Police Department. Uh, even though I made sergeant, uh, it was a very difficult time for me as a black man on that department because you could just see some ingrained prejudices from the uh, police officers uh, regarding minority communities, black and brown communities. And uh, I just could not take that. And so I was a, really a pariah in many instances because I would not stand by and see something like this happen while I was in my presence. Wow. So I was, I was blackballed for a while until I found out what caused me to be blackballed and I went to some black officers who were working out of the chief's office and they took uh, some negative comments out of my uh, personnel package and I became sergeant. And so uh, after becoming sergeant, I was assigned to Newton Division and then sent down to Harbor Division in San Pedro where I really liked and where I bought a home in San Pedro after I moved down there to work. I really enjoy that area, close to the ocean, close to MacArthur uh, Military Base in San Pedro, Cabrillo Beach, close to Palos Verdes Estates. I really enjoy that area. And that's why I retired. No, and then I, uh, after I left there, after about three or four years, I went downtown to Parker Center, and I was in charge of uh, recruitment for my last couple of years. Now, that's interesting that as a, as a police officer, as a black police officer, you, you noted the mistreatment of certain um, people in our, of our community, yes. black, black and brown people. Yes. It did not sit well with you. Um, and that, that reminds me of uh, the policeman, I believe he was a California Highway or a Sheriff's Department. I, I, I don't know which uh, division he was in, but um, Christopher Dorner, um, you know, this was a man who, a black man, who felt, you know, he, it, it was righteous indignation. He said, look, um, I don't appreciate how you treated uh, this black uh, man, and I'm going to um, call you on it. I'm going to um, report you. And, and what he did was reported another, his fellow officer to a, a superior and his superiors looked at him as the 
uh, what, as a trader, as a um, disloyal employee, as a disloyal employee, and so he was he was fired, and his career was over essentially because he had um, told on another um, member of the Blue Brass, I believe. The well, it was uh, very disconcerting the way. Uh, Christopher Dorner uh, lost his life. Uh, I think it was in Big Bear where he got burned, burned up in that shootout with the yes. police officers in the sheriff's department back in uh, Big Bear. But he had, I think he had shot and killed someone too on the on the police department, I believe. Right. If I'm not mistaken. He wanted revenge. Yes. He wanted to exact revenge on the the judges and other fellow yes. uh, police officers. Yeah. And I can see how uh, a situation like that can really impact a person's uh, outlook on life while you were there in that in that department. Uh, I'm not saying that all cops were uh, prejudiced because the majority of the cops are decent guys. I know there's no question about that. But just a few that was uh, antagonistic toward other cultures and other races was a uh, too tough to handle. And it was hard for me to handle them. I'm quite certain that Christopher Dorner, he was much further than I was because he just, he couldn't care less. He could care less about his own life because he could not stand the disparities that was inflicted upon uh, minorities from LAPD. Well, his, his, his livelihood had been taken from him. His right. whole, everything that he believed in um, was sort of a lie. Yes. Um, now, it's sad because it's been well documented that um, the LAPD has, um, you know, in their hiring practices, I guess in the 60s and, 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 and 50s and, and before, they would go and recruit Southerners um, into the LAPD, uh, especially those Southerners who had military backgrounds because they could enforce these racist policies and 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 um, against the the black and brown communities in Los Angeles it's been well documented and so what we're talking about what we're referencing here is is real it is the reality yeah well let's go back to 1965 doing the watch riot uh, there was a big insurrection in the black community in South Central Los Angeles and the chief at that time was chief William Parker and Chief Parker, to me, uh, epitomizes the, the negativity that was uh, displayed upon the black community on, from the chief down to the lowly patrol officer. And Chief Parker reminded me of, of this sheriff in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. What was his name? The, the sheriff who had the fire hoses on black marchers and uh, wielding the batons at black kids and what have you. I'd have I to do a I Google forgot, search. In I forgot the, uh, the sheriff's name. Oh, Bull Connor. Bull Connor. Uh, That's the guy who uh, Chief Park reminded me of, Bull Connor. Because during the watch riot, when they were rioting, I should never forget what Chief Parker said. He said that those rioters are like monkeys in a cage. Wow. And I should never forget that phrase. Monkeys in a cage. And I said, here's a man, he's racist himself. 
There's no question about it. He was racist. But he was there for about 15 or 16 years as chief. So he must have been doing something right as far as the general public was concerned. But as far as minority cops were concerned, uh, yeah, I think he was a pariah as far as I'm concerned. Wow. <coughs> and, um, all right, so we've talked a little bit about your military service, uh, a little bit about the uh, your service in the LAPD, and you retired from the LAPD in 83, as you said. Yes. <coughs> and uh, I kind of get the, the, the impression, Granddad, when... Um, especially last night we were at dinner and uh, in the manner that you were uh, asking me a few questions I caught the I looked at your the way that you were seated and your disposition I thought he's still a police officer he still carries himself you know as a man of the law in inquiring because I I had I had a buddy in Saudi Arabia who was a former police officer and I met him in Saudi Arabia when we were teaching English together so he was in He's now an English teacher. And um, what struck me about him is that he, as a, being a former police officer, he was very inquisitive. He asked, you know, lots of questions. And I thought it was just, he was curious and he was uh, new to teaching. But others, my, my buddies, my fellow colleagues would say, yeah, he asked a lot of questions because he's a police officer. He was a police officer. So I guess in some ways, uh, being a police officer, you have to ask people you know, questions, your whereabouts, and, and what, what you're up to, and, and, and this sort of thing. Yeah, that reminds me of what you're saying now, because my wife said, I asked too many questions. I said, well, <laughs> if you want to know something, you must ask questions. <laughs> yes, yes. And I don't think that has anything to do with police training, but okay. maybe it does uh, subconsciously. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, when I want some answers, uh, I have to ask questions. And sometimes a question might be a little uh, difficult to answer, or they might be a little embarrassing, but if I want to know something, I gotta ask questions. Yes. And if the person does not want to entertain those questions, they can refuse to do so. There's no question about that. I won't feel put upon by refusing the uh, the questions and answering them, but I got I want I want an answer to my questions when I ask. If I can uh, solicit those, uh, I'm sorry. If I can acquire those uh, answers, that's much appreciated. But just, I'm not putting on anyone by asking questions. No, no. So, Granda, we're going to wrap up uh, okay. the podcast here. But um, yesterday, I believe it was, was it yesterday that we had breakfast? Yes. Yes, at the Grits. Okay. All right, so we, we ate at the Grits Cafe in mm -hmm. Nevada here. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, this my podcast is entitled I See 109. And I, I recalled so many of my stories to you than a night or so, a night or two ago. But we had that, that moment at the Grits Cafe when out of the blue, you asked me the time. And sure enough, it was exactly 11.09 a.m. Mm -hmm. And I called your attention to those numbers. There they are again, 109. And that was a moment that surprised you because you said, hey, you know, I've experienced it with you. I see, I saw those numbers. I see 109 right along with you. There they are. Mm -hmm. And so I'm glad that we were able to share that experience because I don't go looking for these 
experiences. I don't go and look for these numbers. I don't go and look for these moments when I can say, hey, those are those numbers. But it's always a, a nice synchronistic, synchronistic, um, serendipitous, um, <coughs> quirky experience and moment um, when I see uh, 109. Mm-hmm. And um, maybe so, that number might have a significance in your life. I don't know. I just wish that uh, you can play those numbers in some kind of way and <laughs> and. Uh, Make a fortune out of those numbers. I don't know. But my question to you is that you are the nephew of Flojo, the world champion uh, uh, track star. And since she passed away back in 1988, I believe. 98. 98. Uh, I would like to know that at this particular point in time, uh, Tiffany Haddish, the famous uh, comedian, in Hollywood is going to portray her in an upcoming movie of her life. Yes. What do you think about Tiffany Haddish portraying your auntie Dee Dee Flojo? <clears throat> I, um, I I enjoy Tiffany Haddish's um, her work. I enjoy her comedy, and I, I think she's um, an attractive and um, funny woman. Although for her comedy, she is. I would have to say irreverent, outlandish. I mean, she's in your face. She, there's nothing, there's no topic that is, uh, what's sacred. She will go there, um, which is fine, but that's, I guess that's sort of off-putting a little, uh, you know, maybe the, like her comedy is a little abrasive. I love her. I support her, but I'll say this. There's another aspect of Tiffany Haddish that I love. It's the fact that she is of Eritrean um, uh, heritage. She is a, a daughter of the um, of an Eritrean American, or possibly an, just uh, an Eritrean. Um, her father was from Eritrea, and when I when I see Tiffany Haddish, I full on support her because of that fact alone. I think that more people should learn about East Africa and the importance of the the Nile Valley civilization, you know, in our history as of, you know, human beings, especially going back to the Aksumite Empire. And the Aksumite Empire, just like the Roman Empire, just like the Persian Empire and all of the, the Ottoman Empire, all of these great empires, there was a, a, a there was a an empire in East Africa that was equally powerful and influential around the globe. Mm-hmm. And in my summation of everything that I know about the the nations of Ethiopia and Eritrea and even Djibouti uh, and possibly Somalia. Yemen and Saudi Arabia, all of these nations were at one time, they fell under the umbrella of Aksum, the Aksumite Empire. Now, the Aksumite Empire, I, I, I think that Tiffany Haddish is sort of a, a modern a reincarnation of an Aksumite empress or uh, a queen of that empire. And so, you know. That's another reason why I love her. 
because she is so fierce. She's a fierce warrior and a fierce uh, queen and, and she loves her country and represents herself very well. So I say all of that to say, I love Tiffany Addish. I appreciate um, her comedy, even though some some jokes, you know, I, I, I care less for, care less for. Um, but when it comes to portraying my aunt, there is that there is that one there's that one issue of um, you know accurate portrayal or representation of of what someone looked like, and the fact is. Tiffany Haddish does not look like my aunt. Now, so that's the only issue that I have. But, but my problem is that I agree with what you said, but I, I mean, I love Tiffany Haddish and her work, her comedy work and what have you, but I, it's for some reason, I just don't see a comedian playing the role of Flojo. The athletic runner. For some reason, I just can't get that conjure in my mind that here's a comedian, a female comedian, portraying and Flojo. Now, you might, maybe Flojo was the uh, comedian herself, I don't know. But uh, for some reason, I'm like you, I don't see the resemblance at all, none whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And I just can't see the, uh, and, and I'm not putting uh, uh, Tiffany down because I love her dearly. But poultry and Flojo, I think that someone else should have been given that role. And, and I can't think of anyone I, I have in mind right now who would fit that role as Flojo. But maybe, maybe Tiffany might do a wonderful job, and I hope she does. But I just can't see a comedian taking on that role. Okay, so with regard to Tiffany Haddish, um, okay, yes. So we agree that the, um, her appearance and resemblance is not there um, with regard to actors who did not resemble the person that they were portraying uh, we can look to uh, Denzel Washington playing Malcolm X and there was yeah, we can look at Forrest Whitaker playing Idi Amin you don't think Forrest Whitaker looked like Idi Amin no he doesn't <laughs> but he did a good job. Yes, yes. He did a good job. So that's why I say Tiffany might do a wonderful job of uh, portraying uh, Flo Jo. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think she, well, from what I've learned from Auntie Gail, she's worked with uh, Uncle Al mm-hmm. for a year and a half uh, to physically get into shape to play Auntie Dee Dee. So that's a that's a credit to uh, her dedication. And no, you said craft. Uncle Al. Tell the people what you mean, Uncle Al. Um, Al Joyner. Al Frederick uh, Joyner. Uh, he was Flojo's husband. Yes. Auntie D. He's a widower now. Flojo, to me, my aunt, um, we knew her as uh, Auntie Dee Dee. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the Dee Dee, uh, because her middle name was Dolores. And uh, her then husband was Al Joyner, Olympian, um, and uh, yeah, so that's that's Uncle Al and Auntie Dee Dee to me. They're still Auntie Dee Dee and Uncle Al. Well, now to your knowledge, uh, the makers of this upcoming film, did they uh, go to your grandmother for any input into Flo Jo's life at all? Uh, as the... Uh, as... 
as far as I'm resource individuals or your family uh, were they involved at all um, having input making this film so grandma uh, grandma Florence had 11 children mm-hmm. and auntie Dee, Dee is the only who is deceased so of the 10 children and including um, grandma uh, Florence no one has been contacted uh, by this project, by the producers of this project. Mm. So the project does not have any family input um, whatsoever. And uh, at least two, at least two of my my aunt Elizabeth and uh, I know my grandmother, uh, they both decline interviews and they wish not to uh, discuss Auntie Dee Dee. Um, with anyone so they would not be at liberty to share any information now the other um, brothers and sisters other aunts and uncles of mine who um, who did not object to uh, helping with the production but no they were not contacted at the end so but you would think that if they were going to make a film of a Didi uh, I think that they might go back to her childhood and by virtue of going through the childhood, they seem though they would have to have some information from her mother, who is your grandmother, to tell them exactly what transpired during her upbringing as a young child. And, and got her interested in running, things of this nature. So to me, I think they're bypassing all of this because naturally her, her widower, Al Joyner, might have been married to her, but he doesn't know the intricacies of her upbringing as your grandmother would be. That's why I think that it's critical that they should have contacted her about the upbringing of Dee Dee. I think, I think that would have been quite interesting, knowing her upbringing and how she got into running and things of this nature. And on that note, <clears throat> I would have to say we're, we will have to uh, wait to see the uh, documentary when it comes out, and we'll be we'll have to judge for ourselves mm-hmm. how well Tiffany Haddish uh, does as in her portrayal of Auntie Dee Dee, mm-hmm. and we will have to see uh, if the story, if Auntie Dee Dee's story can be told sufficiently without the input of family. Mm-hmm. It's that's that's uh, you know only the future will tell. You know. And I hope so. If it's possible. And, and thanks a lot, Larry, for the interview. I really enjoyed talking to you about that. Well, this is the first installment of uh, hopefully a series of uh, conversations with uh, Granddad. And uh, thank you for your uh, input and for your time. And uh, for my listeners out there, thank you for listening to another episode of the IC109 um, or rather the Lock of Law 2 uh, podcast where I talk about how I see 109 and I'm glad granddad was here to uh, uh, corroborate that story that I told about our breakfast yesterday where we saw 109 right thank you